You ever had this experience where uh, you're flying to another city and as soon as you get there and you step off the plane, you pull out your mobile device. And what's the first thing that happens is you step into this new environment and you turn your phone on. Well, there's a message at the top of the screen that says, searching, searching for a connection, searching for a network. Until that phone gets connected, there's not much you can do with that phone. Oh, you can still tell what time it is. You can pull up your calendar of events. You can take a look at the photos that you've taken recently. But until you get connected to the right network, that smartphone's not going to be very smart. It has some serious limitations. But once the connection's made, now it's like all the resources of the outside world are here at your disposal. I mean, now you have access to all kinds of knowledge and information. Now that the connection is made with this little phone, it seems like anything's possible because now you can begin to download all these new apps that enable you to do things you couldn't do before. But without that connection, without being connected to the right network, that little device that you hold in your hand, it's pretty worthless. It cannot do what it was designed to do. Well, that's not just true for smartphones. That's true for people. From the very moment we're born, we're searching for a connection, for a relationship. And if that attachment, that bond is never developed in the right way, even if that baby is fed and clothed and given all the right medicine, they will not thrive. The body weight will always be lower. They experience more illnesses than what they should. I mean, physically, they just suffer in so many ways. In fact, if you were to give that little one a brain scan, you would see these black, or notice these black holes, literal black holes, spaces in the brain where the neurons did not form, the neurological system did not grow together in the way it was supposed to. The hard wiring that that brain requires in order to function and cope, it remains incomplete, which means for years and years to come, that child's going to experience all kinds of behavior problems, and there's always going to be this deficit, this inability to perform and keep up with their peers and all the advancements they're making, because the circuitry that the brain requires in order to figure things out, it's not there. And the reason for the deficit, the reason for all these problems and these limitations is because when that child was first born, they were searching for a connection, and the connection was never made. We were made for relationships, and not just a relationship with each other, but most importantly, we were made for a relationship with God. And if that connection is never made, or if that connection is never maintained and kept strong and steady, then this life cannot be what it was designed to be. Now, believe it or not, that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. And yet, most of us don't see that or get that, and so consequently, when we read Proverbs, we don't get a whole lot out of the book because we don't understand the purpose behind this book. We don't understand or appreciate the design and layout of this book, how it was put together, what it's supposed to be doing for us. We just don't get a lot out of it. I mean, let's be honest, it's really hard to see. First time you pick up the book of Proverbs, especially the last half of the book, chapters 10 to 31, where you have all these pithy little sayings, all these tiny nuggets of wisdom, hundreds and hundreds of individual Proverbs, and yet, as you're reading through it, it just seems scatterbrained. I mean, none of the verses seem to fit together. As you move from one verse to the next, it just, you feel like you're jumping from one topic to the next. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to how those verses were put together. I mean, when you read the book of Proverbs, you feel like you're reading a book of quotes, random quotes, all these models that you could potentially hang on your wall. So here's what most of us do. When we read Proverbs, we just kind of go in with the attitude, well, pick out the proverb you like best, and then pick that out and hang it on the wall of your mind, and let that be your thought for the day. And that's helpful. But when you read the book of Proverbs like that, you're missing the point and you're not getting the benefit out of the book that you're supposed to. Wouldn't you think it's silly if one night you saw me out here by the shelter house late at night sitting around a campfire trying to roast marshmallows? 
And yet instead of having a good time, I'm not enjoying myself at all because instead of sitting there with this long stick so the marshmallows can get warm and soft and I, I can make some s'mores, you see me out there using a flute, a flute to roast marshmallows. Now, as you can imagine, that just doesn't work out very well. So you watch me as I'm getting increasingly frustrated until finally you see me stand up and take that flute and just toss it out in the field of wheat. And you can hear me muttering in my breath, terrible flute, man, I'm so disappointed. It didn't help me, it didn't help me roast marshmallows. Oh, what a stupid flute. And just throw it out in the wheat. And as you're watching me behave like this, you're thinking, oh, David, he's lost it. You know, talk about being silly. And you'd be right to think that because that's not what a flute is made for. A flute is not made to roast marshmallows. So it is with the book of Proverbs. If you don't understand what this book was made for, what it's designed to do, you're not going to get much out of it. Proverbs was written so that we could know God. And I mean not just know about Him, but, but, but enter into an, a very engaging, a deeply moving friendship with Him. Eighty-seven times in this book you come across the very personal name of God, Yahweh. And yet most of us never see that, and it's not our fault. Because in our English translations, instead of translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, it's translated the Lord. And the word Lord is always, this is how you can know that Yahweh is being used. The word Lord is, it, all four letters are capitalized in caps. But we read it like it's some kind of title instead of, it's a name. Same thing happens in the 23rd Psalm, my favorite. This really bugs me. That's my favorite passage of Scripture, and that so many people miss out on the power of that psalm because when they first read it, they read Psalm 23.1, The Lord is my shepherd. And yet in the Hebrew it says, Yahweh is my shepherd. You see, right from the very first word, we're talking about this intimate bond, this intimate connection that sets the tone for everything else you're going to read and learn in that psalm. And yet we read a title instead of a name, and it comes across as kind of cold. You know, think of it like this. Think of a group of men, they're standing around, they're talking to each other, and one of the guys, he's, he's talking about his wife, and yet when he talks about her, he never refers to her by name, he just calls her the wife. Yeah, the wife, she doesn't like barbecue, so if I want some, I have to order it from a restaurant. Yeah, the wife, she went out the other day shopping for shoes. You wouldn't believe how much money she spent. I bet we're going to go bankrupt because of it. Yeah, the wife, guys, you wouldn't believe this. The wife, she asked me to vacuum the carpet. Can you believe that? Me using a vacuum cleaner? She must be out of her mind. Here's a man talking about the love of his life, and yet he's talking about her in such a cold and detached way like she's some kind of appliance, some kind of thing, not a person or a human being. Never calls her by name, just calls her the wife. And it's obvious by the way he talks, they're not close, or he's not very appreciative of her and the relationship that they're supposed to have. Well, so it is in the Bible. The Bible does not say the Lord is my shepherd, like we're going to the principle, we're going to the principles, awesome, oh, watch out. Or we're talking about some kind of vague, abstract deity lives way out there beyond the stars, way, way far away. No! It says, Yahweh, Yahweh is my shepherd. See, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. This is something very, very special. It's the name that God uses when he intends to get really close to us, when he wants to get close and make a personal commitment to us. Remember how the Bible illustrates this for us? Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you read the story of creation. And it's really fascinating to me how the Bible sets this up, how it does it. Not just what it says, how it does it. Uh, Genesis 1.1, it starts off, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made it all, everything, the entire universe. And that word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And it's the word that the Bible uses when it wants to emphasize how mighty and majestic God is. Hey, look at this big world that God made. And if he made all this, what does that tell you about him? How big and powerful he is. Our God is awesome. There is no one else like him. And that might and majesty is emphasized all the way through Genesis chapter 1 as you read, Elohim said, 
It happened. And Elohim looked at what he'd made and said, this is good. But then you come to Genesis chapter 2, and what the Bible does, it goes back over the same story again a second time. Only the second time you look at how God created everything, now you're looking at everything from a different perspective. In Genesis chapter 2, we kind of narrow in on the detail. We just zero in on one day, day 6. And just one part of that day, the last part of that day, when God's getting ready to create Adam and Eve. So we just zero in on that one small section, those details. And we watch this great God as he gets close. With his own hand, he takes the dust of the ground to create Adam. And now standing face to face, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam becomes this living being. And then some period of time later, one day, God draws Adam close to his side and said, listen, I'm going to put you to sleep for a little bit. I just don't want you to experience any kind of pain or discomfort. Don't worry. Just be here for a little bit. I'm going to put you to sleep because, Adam, i got a surprise in store for you. And so he very gently, out of great compassion, he tenderly puts Adam to sleep. And then from his rib, from his side, literally, he says, from his side, he creates Eve. Here's God attending to all these intricate, intimate details. And all the way through Genesis chapter 2, what are you reading? Not Elohim, it's Yahweh Elohim. It comes across in our English Bible as the Lord God. But it's actually Yahweh Elohim. Here's the God getting close. Why? Because he wants to build and develop a relationship with Adam and Eve. He wants to build and develop a friendship with us. That's the book of Proverbs, 87 times, again and again and again, we come across this very special, very personal name, Yahweh. Why? Because all the wisdom we find in this book is the wisdom comes right out of his heart. And he's sharing this wisdom with us because he wants to get close to us, and he wants to make it possible for us to get close to him. Now, I want you to understand how that comes out in the very design of the book, the, w- the way the book's laid out. I mean, God's not only careful in what he, what he said here, but how he put it all together. Uh, there's a master plan here. Chapters 1 to 9 of the book of Proverbs sets the stage for everything else. It, it's, it's the key. Chapters 1 to 9 is the key to understanding all those pithy little sayings, all those tiny nuggets of wisdom, those hundreds and hundreds of individual Proverbs that you find in chapters 10 to 31. Chapters 1 to 9 set the stage for that. See, chapters 1 to 9... You have a series of poems, and in the poems you meet two ladies. One's named Wisdom, and the other's named Folly. One's good, the other's bad. One's here to help. The other here is here to deceive, to lead you on, to pull a con, and take advantage of you. Watch your step. And then you get to chapter 9, and you find out where these two ladies live, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. They, you notice that they each live on top of a mountain, the two highest points in the city. And if you're living in the ancient world, that's significant. Because in the ancient world, that's where you'd always find the temples, the places of worship. That's where you would go to meet with your God. Even in an area of the world like Mesopotamia, where you find Babylon, places like that, even in Mesopotamia where the land is as flat as a pancake, they got no mountains. So they built human mountains, buildings called ziggurats, pyramid-like structures. So their God would have a place to dwell. He's got to be at the high place, uh, lifted up above everyone and everything else. He must have the preeminence. He's more important to us than anyone else. So it is even in the Bible, in the story of Israel. You see God, when he comes to make an appearance, it's on Mount Sinai. As he gives what Exodus 20 calls the Ten Words, or we call them the Ten Commandments. They're simply a reflection of his character. We get to find out what God himself, from the inside out, what he's really like. And then later on, God gives directions about a house. Hey, I want you to build a house for me so I can have a home, so I can come and dwell with you. And in the Old Testament, that home is called a temple. And yet, where is that temple put? 
on Mount Zion, high and lifted up there in the city of Jerusalem. So, as you're working your way through the book of Proverbs, those first nine chapters, by the time you get to chapter nine, you're starting to put two and two together, and you begin to realize this lady wisdom, she represents God. The words, the thoughts, the wisdom, the directions for life that he is sharing with us. And Lady Folly represents all the false gods, the false religions that so many people foolishly turn to for help. Well, you get to Proverbs chapter 9, and what do you see these two ladies doing? They're each standing there by their house, and they're calling out because they're trying to get the attention of this young man. The young man who represents you and me. Young man, as he's walking the path of life, as he's taking this journey through this world, and right now he just kind of everything's cloudy and foggy and I'm not sure which way to go and he hears Lady Wisdom and he hears Lady Folly and they're each saying, hey, I have a meal prepared for you. Come into my house. I have some advice to share. I have some guidance to provide. Come to my home and visit with me. And again, if you're living in the ancient world, that, that has significance because when you got an invitation to come to somebody's home for a meal, you weren't just going there to eat food. You were going there because this was an invitation to become friends. You didn't step into that home unless you were willing to form a bond, unless you were willing, really, really uh, willing and eager to, to get close to that person. So now you begin to appreciate what God's doing here in the book of Proverbs, chapters 10 to 31, all those nuggets of wisdom. That's the meal that God has prepared for us. But before you can sit down and enjoy that meal, really appreciate all this wisdom is sharing. First of all, Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, you've got to accept this offer to step into his home to enter into a life with him, to enter into a covenant with him, to enter into this deep and abiding friendship with God. In other words, Proverbs chapter 1 to 9, you make the connection. And once you've got this solid connection, now Proverbs chapters 10 to 21, now you can begin to download all these new apps, all these precious pieces of wisdom in your heart, these pieces of wisdom that will enhance and enlarge your ability to experience and enjoy a great and meaningful life. Now, that's the setting, the background for the words we're going to read and study today here in Proverbs chapter 4. So let's take a look. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And here's why I want us to look at these two verses today. This is one of the memory verses for this year's VBS, our Vacation Bible School. All week long, the boys and girls are going to be learning about a man named Paul. And they're going to watch all these changes that take place in Paul's life. And why? Because he makes this choice to follow Jesus, to enter into his home, to enter into a life with him. He's not just going to walk this way. He's going to walk this way with Jesus. And just like Paul would begin to understand, now the light begins to come on for us. When we begin to look back through the eyes of the New Testament, now we begin to see things that we didn't see before. All the way through the Old Testament, we have this personal name of God, Yahweh. But now in the New Testament, it gets even more personal. Because now the Word became flesh. The Word, it's a title for God. It lets us know who He is. He's a God who, who wants to communicate. He wants to reveal Himself. He wants to connect. He, he wants to make Himself known so He can get close to us. And the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. Suddenly, here is God with a face. Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? John chapter 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now we can see and know God in ways that wasn't possible back there in the Old Testament. And so now, as we look at the book of Proverbs, from the perspective of the New Testament, now I begin to understand all the way through this book, as I'm reading about the father instructing his son, as I'm reading about the king training the prince to how to live this royal life, this is Jesus talking to me. This is Jesus mentoring me. This is Jesus discipling me, sharing his wisdom with me so I can experience a truly royal life. 
That's the context for these words. Verse 12, when you walk, meaning when you walk with the wisdom that comes from above, when you choose to live under the leadership and guidance of Jesus, here will be the result. Your steps will not be hampered. You'll have a liberating, a freedom kind of life. And when you run, you will not stumble. You're not going to trip over the sin because you're walking with the one who gives you better choices to make, who offers you a better life to live, who shows you a better way to go. So there's that promise, that promise of life. Now, verse 13, here's our response. So hold on to everything he says. Hold on to his instructions. This expression, hold on, means it's not just a one-time deal. This is something you do every single day. This is not something that's going to come about by luck or chance or accident. You don't just happen upon this. You want to walk with God. You want to really be blessed by his wisdom. Then every day you've got to make this choice to make this commitment to trust what he says and to do what he commands and to follow his lead. So you hold on. You, you don't let it out of your grasp. You don't let go of it. No, you guard it. You treasure it. You cherish You value it because you realize this is your life. This is what you were made for, a life with him. Here's how I would picture it. Think of a little girl, four or five years old, standing on this, as a, at this busy intersection in the heart of a big city like Chicago. Here's this little girl, naive, inexperienced. She hasn't grown up yet. A lot of things she doesn't know yet. Gullible. That's how the book of Proverbs would describe her. In our English translations, instead of the word gullible, sometimes they'll use the word simple or simple-minded. Not necessarily negative, but in this condition, unless she gets some help, unless she gets some protection, some friendship, she gets some kind of wisdom, she'll get herself in this kind of situation. She'll get herself in a lot of trouble. Because right now, this naive and inexperienced, she's unaware of all the dangers that surround this dangerous intersection. If she doesn't step out at the right time, man, she could easily get run, uh, run over. Or all the dangers that mean, nasty people live in a place like this that could so easily take advantage of her. And yet the little girl is not scared. She's not afraid. Why? Because she's not standing there alone. She's holding on to the hand of her father. And the father's holding on to her because he really cares about it. He's the one taking the lead in this journey. So they make it safely across that dangerous intersection. In fact, they spend a lot of time here in the big city. And they have a wonderful time because the father knows, no, let's not go to that part of town. That's dangerous. That's not a good place to be. Let's go over here. Here's where we can have fun. Here's where we can experience delight. Here's where we can experience something really, really good. He knows the right places to go and the wrong places to avoid. See, now that she's got this connection, she begins to reap all the benefits of his wisdom. One last observation, and then we'll close. All the way through the book of Proverbs, there's a string. There's a thread that just ties the whole book together. And it's a string called the fear of the Lord. You find it at the very beginning of the book, you find it at the very end of the book, and you find it right at the center, right at the very heart of the book. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, And the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Meaning, if you don't start here, you won't get anything else right. But more than that, it means the beginning means it's the foundation. If you want to build a house that's good and solid, you want to put together a life that's really worthwhile, you've got to build on this foundation, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, Proverbs 1 said. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To really know and understand this world and what life is like in this world, it all starts here with the fear of the Lord. And then you come to chapter 9 as you're coming to the end of the first half of the book and you're getting ready to step into that second half with all those individual Proverbs. Here's, again, this string tying it all together. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord. 
is the beginning, the foundation for wisdom. Now that I'm getting all this knowledge and insight and understanding from God, this connection that I have with God, here's wisdom. Now, now you can begin to skillfully put it to work and, and enjoy its benefits in, in your day-by-day life. And then you get to the very end of the book, Proverbs chapter 31, and it ends with this beautiful poem, carefully crafted. I mean, put together like a piece of art. It's like you're looking at a portrait, and you are. A work of art, a portrait of this noble woman. But what is it that makes her noble? This elegant, it lives this elegant, beautiful life. What is it that distinguishes her, that causes her to stand out from everybody else in this community? Because you get right to the end of the poem and you read, this is a woman who chooses to fear the Lord. Now understand, that's how it reads in our English Bibles, but in the Hebrew, it's not fear the Lord, it's fear Yahweh. Yerat, fear, Yerat, Yahweh. Now we think fear, you mean be scared, be afraid, shake, tremble? No, no. Yurat, it, 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 it has the idea of like, like the little girl holding on uh, to the hand of her father and realizing I can't let go because if I get separated from him in this big city with all of its dangers, if the two of us get apart and I'm out here on my own, I'm in trouble. I'm lost. I'll just be totally lost. So realizing that, she stays as close to him as she possibly can. I mean, she clings to him. She holds tightly onto that hand because it's only with him that I'm safe and I make it to the right places. That's the fear of the Lord. Or think of this image in your mind. You remember years and years ago, there was a commercial, a series of commercials on TV about E.F. Hutton. You remember you see different scenarios in the different commercials, sometimes hundreds of people milling around in a crowded shopping mall, or maybe hundreds and thousands of people here in the, in the heart of the big city like Chicago or New York, at one of these intersections, all these cars, all these people, pedestrians just passing by one another, everybody lost in their own little world, consumed and preoccupied with their own thoughts. When all of a sudden you zero in on two people, two individuals are having a conversation, and one individual says, and E.F. Hutton says, and instantly the noise disappears, traffic stops, everybody comes to a standstill because they're all leaning in. E.F. Hutton, man, what, what does he say? Man, this could change my life. This could alter my future. Here's a piece of advice that I treasure and value. I can't miss out on this because this could change everything for me. What does E.F. Hutton say? That's the concept, the idea behind the fear of the Lord. You begin to realize that what Jesus says, what Jesus does matters more than anything else in this universe. So the fear of the Lord is this attitude. You realize he is the source and fount of all wisdom for all aspects of life. And I don't want to miss out on a thing he says or a thing he does. I want to be as close to him as I possibly can be. But am I listening? Here's the source and fountain of all wisdom. And am I receiving from him? Here's the God who wants to get close to me. But do I have that yearning, that same yearning and desire to be close to him? Here's the God who wants to enter into a covenant with me, wants to make a commitment to me. But have I made that commitment to him? Let's pray.